Luke 19. I want to read all five sections of this chapter. It is a little bit of a longer uh, section to read, but the uh, author Luke is thematically tying together all of these five sections to show the meaning and the purpose of the uh, Palm Sunday celebration, the triumphal uh, entry. And first comes the surprising context. At least for the Jews, it was a surprising context, maybe not for us. Because he enters into the home of a person who was cut off from Israel and uh, now has been brought into the covenant, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then next comes a parable that describes what is going to happen to apostate uh, Israel as God uh, judges them and expands the kingdom to the Gentiles. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten, ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And then comes the the uh, triumphal entry where he is declaring himself to be the king and making a statement actually of, of peace to those who will receive his peace. 
When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, whereas you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it them said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as he was now drawn nearing the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city, and this, this section here shows what happens to those who reject his peace. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then finally, the cleansing of the temple, where he deals with the church. He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and it is... Uh, my prayer that you would bless this word to our hearts, that you would sanctify us and enable us to glory in all your provision. We seek uh, to continue to worship you in our responses. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be... Uh, back with you after a very successful uh, missions trip. And it was kind of fun to see the way the Lord uh, was orchestrating some of the different uh, events uh, in Jonathan's um, uh, section where he was for four days working without me and how the Lord just brought together different events there. And I was just thrilled to see the way the Lord uh, opened up opportunities for me to witness with uh, gentlemen working in the uh, federal government uh, with a person working in the courts there, uh, uh, PhDs working in the school system, and various church leaders. Um, and uh, I'll give a little bit of a report later on after the uh, worship service so that I don't have to repeat the stories uh, 50 different times. And so if you stick around after the benediction, I'll, I'll give you an update on that. But one of the things that's been fascinating to me over the last two trips that I have been on is to see the way in which apparently chance events, and we know there's no such thing as a chance event, right? But apparently chance events 
have been intricately woven together in God's divine providence and opening up opportunities for bringing reformation. And uh, it's just been amazing for me to see it because these are events that I did not plan in any way. Jonathan certainly did not plan his part. And to see the way God wove these events together and opening up opportunities that we had not planned at all, uh, to me, was just thrilling. Um, This is the way the book of Esther uh, was written. Uh, Apparent mistakes, chance events, obviously not chance because God is weaving them together in the tapestry of His master plan. I was memorizing the book of Ephesians on the way back and Ephesians 1 and 2, you know, talks about the mystery of the Gospels being uh, unveiled and indicating that every detail of that was predestined before the foundation of the world. Uh, You cannot escape from... Uh, The fact, when you read through the Gospels, that over and over again, Jesus indicates that even the smallest details have already been planned from the foundation of the world. Uh, Some of the uh, statements that he makes is that uh, it has been determined, or I must pass through, or um, the statement, my hour has not yet come. He was uh, very conscious of God's divine timetable. And the Gospel writers themselves use phrases like, it was necessary or it was fulfilled, or thus was prophesied, um, or his time had not yet come. Very keenly aware of God's divine uh, timing of his his providence. And to to me, this gives incredible comfort and peace. Doesn't matter what circumstances you're in, God is in charge. He's in control. And the same God who orchestrated every event and could not fail back then, cannot fail in your lives today. Doesn't matter how insignificant the detail in your life, maybe you just stubbed your toe, it is not insignificant in God's overarching plan uh, that uh, He planned from before the foundation of the world. And I want to read you a story of how one little event with a dog kept the English Reformation on course, even though the uh, King of England was not Reformation-minded. He wasn't even a believer as far as I was concerned. And he was trying to patch up his quarrel with the Pope. Uh, The English Reformation is really God's moving in the hearts of believers and unbelievers in pushing forward His purposes perfectly. And uh, there are perhaps thousands, who knows, maybe even millions of events like this that were working together. But here's the story. King Henry VIII of England sent a delegation to the Vatican to patch up the political differences between himself and the Pope. The delegation was led by the Earl of Wiltshire, who took along his dog. As was customary at that time, the Earl prostrated himself before the Pope and was about to kiss the Pope's toe. The Pope, willing to receive the homage, thrust his foot toward the Earl, and his dog, watching, misunderstood the action and went to the defense of his master. Instead of a kiss, the Pope got a bite on the toe. This enraged the Swiss guard, and they killed the dog. This so angered the Earl that he refused to proceed with the mission for which he had been sent, and he returned home without having accomplished anything. After his return to England, King Henry VIII took steps to separate England from the jurisdiction of Rome. So you could say that the English Reformation was brought about by a dog bite. (laughs) Well, not really, because it was thousands of events like this, as God was moving the true motives of believers who wanted Reformation Uh, moving those things uh, forward. And there are details in this passage that may seem like insignificant details 
And yet the writer of this book wants us to realize there isn't anything insignificant. God had planned these before He had prophesied these events and they all had to happen. They all had to happen. I want you to turn with me to one of the prophecies that uh, probably forms the basis for this passage here and it's in Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 through 10. And I'm going to spend about four minutes looking at the wonder of God's prophetic words. So, point one is that Christ went as it has been determined, as the, the, the Gospels worded. He went as it has been determined. Zechariah 9 and verses 9 through 10. First section just deals with the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this first section spells out in literal detail the triumphal uh, entry. There is a prophecy about the rejoicing and the shouting as uh, Christ comes riding in. You may remember from the other gospel when they're singing and they're shouting, the Pharisees get really upset and they say, shut these guys up. Don't you see what they're saying about you? And Jesus' response was, if they were not singing, even the stones would have to cry out. In effect, what he was saying is, prophecy is so sure of being fulfilled that if we didn't have humans shouting, God would have to do a miracle and make the, shout, the, the rock shout out because there is a prophecy that when I come into Jerusalem, there's going to be shouting and there's going to be rejoicing is basically what Jesus was saying. And so God's purposes absolutely cannot fail even on insignificant events like shouting. Uh, he mentions also that salvation and kingship go hand in hand. Uh, Good Friday, or depending on your interpretation, Good Thursday, depending on when you think that uh, Christ died. Um, Good Friday and Easter, they have to go together if he is to reign as king. It mentions a she-donkey and a colt, namely the foal of a she-donkey, in order to get the, across the idea that there were two animals uh, that were present. And, of course, Matthew picks up on that and says that there was a, uh, a female donkey and there was a colt that had never been ridden on before. And they bring both along, maybe because the young donkey won't come without the mother. And they put clothes on both of those donkeys so that Christ can ride on either one of those. And uh, so God is a God of detail. Next comes the significance of the triumphal entry. It's judgment on, on Jerusalem because they reject him. And it's a reference to 70 A.D. when the Romans came in conquest. He says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. And so uh, when Christ is declared to be king... During that time, God is going to bring a battle against Jerusalem and Jerusalem's going to lose. It's going to be cutting off the bow and the arrow. They're going to be completely um, um, uh, 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 judged and their ability to fight cut off. Then in the third section, he says, as a result of this, the gospel is going to be going to the far reaches of the globe. That's the second part of verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, all three of those sections are connected to the same time period. There's first of all a declaration that Jesus is king. Then following that, there's going to be destruction of 
uh, Jerusalem. There's going to be a war against Israel. And then following that, there's going to be a massive expansion of the gospel to the far reaches of the globe until all nations fall down before Christ. And so I hope that gives you excitement. Uh, it gives me excitement. I'm thrilled about prophecy you know, when I see the, the, the details in which God orchestrated these things. But it also ought to give us excitement that the God of detail who worked through the details in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a God who continues to be alive. He continues to work in our lives and we can trust Him. Well, with that as a background, let's take a look at Luke 19 and see how he draws these three themes from Zechariah's prophecy. And I'm going to take points two and three together and just going to quickly show how Zechariah's talk of judgment on Israel, blessings of the Gentiles, are woven together throughout this whole chapter. Uh, many people read uh, the triumphal entry out of context, but look at verse 28 again. It says, when he had said this, so there's a context for what he's going to be doing. When he had said this, he went on ahead. He's dovetailing these together. Uh, Christ, first of all, gave the significance of what he's going to be doing, and Luke tries to draw attention to that. And so verses 1 through 27 all happen in Zacchaeus' home. Uh, you know the story. The Jews are offended that Christ would uh, go into the house of a tax collector. Here he is, a despised man. He's treated as worse than a Roman. Uh, and in verses 9 through 10... As we read that, I want you to keep in mind Zechariah's prophecy of judgment to Israel as well as blessing to the Gentiles. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here is a tax collector, a man who is considered to be vile, to be rejected by uh, the Jews, uh, treated as like a Roman, worse than a Roman perhaps, who was welcomed by Christ as being a son of Abraham. Obviously not necessarily by physical descent, but a son of Abraham by faith. Uh, Romans and Galatians says, you and I are sons of Abraham, even though we're not physically descended from him. John the Baptist had earlier said that when the Jews said, we are sons of Abraham. He says, no, you're not. You're cut off from Israel. And he said, God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. If God wanted to, so it's an, an Israel that is spiritual that he's talking about. They're descendants by faith. Now, in the next section, verses 11 through 27, Christ treats those who were true blue Jews physically as being cut off outside the kingdom, being rejected. And so let me just read that again uh, now that you've seen the context. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And then he gives that parable of the of the ten minas and of the destruction of the. Uh, the enemies in verses 26 and 27. So what's happening here is Christ has introduced two themes. There is going to be tremendous blessing to those who receive Christ's peace and uh, it will include heathens. It will include people like he went to, to meet with, this tax collector, and they will become the true sons of Abraham. The second theme is there will be judgment upon those who refuse to have Christ rule over them. 
And so you can see how he's developing the themes of Zechariah. The slaying of the enemies, as mentioned in verse 27, is simply the Sadducees and the high priests and the, uh, the Pharisees, all of those people who had rejected Christ and said, we will not have this man to rule over us. Uh, they are the ones that the king is going to be putting to death. And then that theme is spelled out in further detail in verses 41 through 48. Now, let's read that. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. He had a premonition that Jerusalem is going to be toast. It's going to be destroyed. He says, he wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so this is dealing with a judgment upon that generation that he was talking to, uh, a judgment prophesied by Zechariah. And it was a, an event that was fulfilled when the Romans came and they destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, you may be interested in knowing how it was that they came to a place where not one stone was left upon another in that temple because these were massive blocks. This would have been an incredible feat to accomplish. Titus, who was the general of the Roman army, saw this temple as being such an incredibly beautiful masterpiece, one of the wonders of the world in the ancient Near East, even among pagans. They recognized that as one of the wonders of the world. He said, don't anybody dare destroy that temple. And he repeated that command a number of times. So the soldiers all knew this was not to be destroyed, but prophecy had to be fulfilled. And so God made those soldiers just run completely out of control. They burned the city. They burned the temple. And uh, Titus was so grieved when he saw the temple uh, being burnt down. But what happened is that the gold that plated everything in the temple began to melt and it ran in between the stones and the, the Roman soldiers got a lot of their pay from plunder. Uh, they were allowed to plunder at the time because uh, that was the expectation. They could enrich themselves and that was a motivation to really fight hard. And so when they saw that there was gold that had gone all between the, the, the stones, they removed every stone. They worked really hard to make sure they got all of the gold that was in there. Not one stone left upon another. And again, you can see God is able to control even a massive army uh, like the, the Romans. Now, to summarize that section, the triumphal entry was an awesome fulfillment of prophecy, but it was also an awesome event in Israel's history that was put before them. You guys are standing in the balances. You've got a choice that you need to make. Reject the Son and find judgment. Receive Him and find peace. There can be no neutrality. There can be no in-between position. If you're not for Him, automatically He treats you as being against Him. And the king primarily comes for peace. Um, he uh, comes on a donkey, and that's a marvelous image because in the ancient Near East, any time that a king was being coronated or where he was declaring peace to a nation... He came not on a war horse, but he came on either a donkey or he came on a mule. And you can see examples in the Old Testament, like when Solomon is coronated and whatnot. And it was a declaration. If you're for me, you got peace. I'll give amnesty to all my enemies. But if you continue to fight against me, well, it'll be a different situation. So it really is a wonderful symbol. And in the same way, we can say that the gospel is primarily good news. 
Okay, we look at the Lord's table and we see in 1 Corinthians 11 that there are judgments that are connected with it in 1 Corinthians 10 as well. But primarily, this is a feast that brings good news, not bad news. But if the gospel is rejected, if Christ as king is rejected, it's bad news. Very bad news. And that's what's uh, going on here in this passage. And the meaning of Palm Sunday continues to be the same today. Christ is king and his kingdom has come. And I think Zechariah was very clear on that, but I think Luke is as well. Uh, look at verses 11 and 12 again. It says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he needs to explain the triumphal entry and why it is that there are some things that need to happen before the kingdom can be established. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, later on, he identifies himself as being that noble, nobleman. And he doesn't come back to receive a kingdom. He goes away to receive a kingdom. Okay, so it's at the ascension of Christ when he goes away that he sits on his throne, that he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Daniel 7, you can make a note to the left of that. Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 uh, makes it very clear that it's when Christ comes to the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven. Not when he comes back at the second coming on the clouds of heaven, but when he comes to the ancient of days that a kingdom is given to him and that all peoples, all nations uh, are destined to serve him. Now, if that's true, if Christ is presently king, and if there is presently a kingdom that he is reigning from his throne in heaven, that has profound ramifications for our lives. That means that Christ continues to confront people with his offer of peace or the alternative of verse 27. Bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. I don't think we should think of it as being Israel alone that receives God's judgment. Somehow people think all of the judgments, all of the activities, all of the miracles of Scripture, that happens, you know, in Bible times, but it doesn't continue to happen now. Well, that's ridiculous. God continues to be a king who brings judgments upon nations and uh, you can just think of how Acts 2 applies Psalm 2 to Pontius Pilate and how he applies it to, uh, to the nation of Israel. The options in Psalm 2 are kiss the son or face his wrath. And uh, the judgments of God, you can see it all throughout uh, the last 2,000 years. You can see his judgments being meted out upon the nations even now. But it's not just the nations. He judges the church. Uh, he, it wasn't just in the first century where he cleanses the temple. Uh, he continues to say to the church today, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Many Christians are so content to be saved, they forget that God has called them to submit their lives and to seek purity of life. Uh, Christ tells the churches in Revelation exactly what he told the churches in verses 11 through 27. The church of that day, he tells them that if they fail to develop, you know, metaphorically, the minus that he has given to them, he's going to bring judgment. Let me read you a couple examples. He tells Ephesus, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. Okay, There is a judgment upon a local church that was not willing to repent and to seek uh, purity. He tells Pergamos, Repent, or else I will come to you soon and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He tells Thyatira, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And he speaks to other um, churches in a similar manner. And so Palm Sunday reminds us we have a king who continues to offer peace or trouble. Two options. Uh, it does not confront us with an academic question. It confronts us with a living person who makes demands upon our lives. It also reminds us that this king has been given ownership over everything that we have. If you look at verse 13, it says there, So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. And throughout the parable, he refers to the money that he's given to these people, as well as the interest that they've gained as my money, right? It belongs to the Lord. Like those servants, we are stewards. What we have and everything that we are, God expects us to use for his kingdom, for his glory. We need to be thinking about um, our children as related to the Lord. They're not just ours. He gives them to us as a stewardship trust. Uh, We need to be thinking of our recreation and our work uh, as as a way of doing everything to His glory. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so this parable shows that Christ holds us accountable. Uh, And I think it's illustrated beautifully by the failure of Christ to ask permission when He takes that donkey. Now, if anybody else had done that, it would have been considered theft, right? What are you doing taking this donkey? And they actually object to them taking the donkey. But as soon as they mention, well, the Lord has need of them, they say, oh, okay. Okay, you see what's going on there? If the Lord has need of it, it's a stewardship trust. It belongs to Him. If He wants it, He can take it. It is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, not the ranchers who are stewards of that cattle. They didn't just have cattle wandering around freely. There were ranchers, right, who owned it as a stewardship trust, but it's God who ultimately owns those cattle. It is God who calls for your donkey to be loosed in his service and who expects you to have a godly response. And if God has opened up, uh, called you to open up your home uh, in hospitality, to use your car, to give us a ride to church, uh, You need to ask, what is an appropriate response from me? If he's king, I need to be following uh, what he calls me to do. Do you question his right to kingship or do you rejoice over the incredible privilege that you have of being stewards of the king? Uh, If your heart has not yet found joy in laying your garments down under the feet of his donkey to walk on, then you need to say, Lord, give me a steward's heart. Help me to have the same joy these guys had. And you need to think, here's an expensive coat, you know. Well, not very expensive. Uh, what did this coat cost? You know, a hundred and uh, something dollars. But they lay it down on the ground and the donkey's got sharp feet and it's digging it down into the ground. It probably ruins those garments. And in fact, it's a statement, Lord, everything I have belongs to you and it's a delight for me to give it up for you. Uh, if you have had difficulty loosing your donkey and saying, Lord, if you have need of my donkey, take it. Anytime you want to use it, it's at your disposal. Ask God to give you a steward's heart. Ask Him to help you to embrace uh, His kingship. 
uh, it should not be a, his kingship should not be a theoretical concept. His kingship always demands a response. And so we need to ask ourselves, in what ways have I tangibly demonstrated? I really believe that he is a king. Is he the king of my life? And then finally, Palm Sunday means that we are to be ambassadors for this king. Zechariah says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the question. How does God speak peace to the nations? Is there a great big booming voice that comes out of heaven saying, Peace to these nations? Obviously not. Does He send His angels? Well, no, unless you're defining angels... uh, Uh, In the broad sense, the word angel just means messenger. And so there are human angels, there are human messengers that are supposed to be giving the good news. But he doesn't send the angels of heaven. He uses ordinary people just like you and like me. The Great Commission tells us that upon receiving his kingdom, isn't that what is involved in the words, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? I think so. Upon receiving his kingdom, he commissions ambassadors to represent him and to claim his dominion from sea to sea. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And so we are ambassadors um, seeking, uh, appealing to the nations to be reconciled to him. And so even when Christ was physically here on earth, he spoke of the absolute imperative of having ambassadors. If these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He must have ambassadors. He must have people who will represent his kingdom. Now, thankfully, his disciples were not ashamed to speak of him despite the opposition of the Pharisees. And so in verse 37, it says, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And Matthew tells us that that whole multitude included children. And so you children should not be thinking, well, when I grow up, then I will serve the Lord. When I grow up, I will speak about him. No, right from the time that we are young, God claims has made his claim upon us and we need to be willing to speak to him, uh, speak about him. Every believer, young and old, has a general call to talk about Jesus. So again, we need to ask ourselves, have we done so? Are we willing to talk about the Lord? If the Great Commission is to be fulfilled, and if all the nations are to be discipled, then we must do what Zechariah says and shout forth His praises. We're gathered together here this morning. We've been doing a little bit of of, uh, singing. We've been doing a little bit of celebrating and shouting of His praises. But He calls uh, calls upon us to give Him our all to be ambassadors for Him. Back in that day, there were some people who were a little bit embarrassed by what people were doing over Jesus. They thought this was a little bit extravagant. Uh, There was a little bit too radical, too religious, and Jesus wept over them. Uh, He may be weeping over us as well. He may be saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. And I think he would weep over us if we have not acknowledged his kingship in every area of our lives. I think he would weep over us if we're not willing to lose our donkeys for him. Okay, if we're hugging to ourselves what rightfully belongs to him or like the man who buried his mina, if we're failing to invest everything that we have to be fruitful for his kingdom, he would weep because we're ashamed to be witnesses of him. 
Jesus said in Luke 9, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. Luke 9, verse 26. And so the King has come, and those who have embraced the things that make for peace, He says, I will give you joy. I'll give you fulfillment. I'll give you peace. You're going to have a satisfying life. But those who seek to bypass Palm Sunday will find trouble. And so I exhort you this morning to be consistent with your claim to believe that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And when He calls upon you to serve Him, do so with gusto. When He calls upon you to give uh, of the things that belong to you, do so with gusto and say, Yes, Lord, my garments are, are, are at your disposal. My donkeys are at your disposal. I want to serve you. And when He calls you to be an ambassador for Him and to speak, don't be ashamed of Him. Don't be ashamed of Him. Speak on His behalf. And you will have his well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. But uh, that you are using the church for the extension of your kingdom. And I pray that we would be able to be used uh, to that end. Make us fruitful. In ourselves, we cannot do this a grand and glorious task of discipling the nations. But we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so I pray that you would strengthen us in this task of submitting our all to the extension of the kingdom of King Jesus. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.